Welcome to another edition of the World Football Index Copa Libertadores podcast. I'm your host, Austin Miller, here in still chilly Chicago. Another week of Libertadores action to break down for you. So let's get straight into it. We will meet the panel for this week's show. As always, Adam Brandon down in Chile. Adam, I hope that you've recovered from the uh, Corinthians Internacional penalty shootout you forced yourself to watch in the Copa do Brasil last night. I know as a fan of well-taken penalties, that was probably a tough one for you. Yeah, it, it was a shocking penalty shootout, that's for sure. But I, I was brightened up today by the one between uh, Besiktas and Lyon. That was, that was kind of a polar opposite of that one. With, with plenty of well-taken penalties, which cheered me up. Yeah, I've been in quite a cheery mood all week, actually. Had a lot of fun watching football this week. This possibly partly down to the fact that Norwich and Arica, their seasons are both over, so I don't really have to worry about them anymore. So I can sort of sit back and, and relax and watch, and watch the football unfold, yeah. Great fun watching Monaco and Ajax, young sides in Europe this week, and... Uh, and it was great to see Davison Sanchez getting on so well at Ajax. Uh, of course, uh, one of our favorite players from the uh, Copa Libertadores last year. Yeah, he was a player that we talked about a lot on last year's Libertadores pod, and good to see him doing so well. The nice thing about doing these pods for so long with you guys is that I've started to recognize, you know, what makes you guys happy, what makes you frustrated. And so I know Adam is not a fan of poorly taken penalties. Nothing will grind him as much as that. Uh, Simon Edwards, our next guest in Medellin, is a fan of luxury tens, as he has said once or twice. Simon, I'm sure you have some tens to bring to the table tonight for us that caught your eye this week. Yeah, of course. Uh, always, always. You know, for me, it's just like there's just like number ten in a supporting cast. Really, just get the ball, get the ball to the ten. Um, but luckily in South America, the ten is coveted as it should be. You know, none of this four four two nonsense. Um, so yeah, good to good to see some tens on on show this week in the Libertadores. And finally, we have Tom Robinson. Tom, been a while since we've talked. Uh, hope you're doing well. Yeah, it's good to be back. Um, I'm doing very well. I'm sort of battling through sleep deprivation to uh, to contribute to this podcast from from London. But I've been uh, keeping up to date with all the Libertadores, and it's been a it's been a good week for Argentina. So um, yeah, plenty plenty to talk about. We do appreciate you battling through some of that sleep deprivation for us. Uh, your perspective is much appreciated. Uh, so I will start with you. We'll start on Tuesday, as we always do. The first match of this week, Lanús ran out 5-0 winners against Zulia. Uh, Lanús got a goal early on in this match, and from there it was pretty much off to the races. They pounded four more home in the second half. Good, strong, convincing performance from them. Yeah, it was really Lanús back to their best. You know, they've... They've struggled a bit since their Torneo de Transición win um, last uh, middle of the last year. They've really, you know, got to grips after a, a slow start, which uh, slow start, which we can put down probably to the the fact the Argentine league kicked off a little bit late. But um, yeah, as you said, they got off to a great start. Laucha Costa got onto the end of a, a nice back heel from uh, Pepe Sand, and yeah, Sand was you know the the sort of star man really. He got a great uh, goal for the for the second for Lanús and um, yeah he's he's been hitting some good form lately with seven goals in his last six appearances in the in the league and Copa so having him back on form is going to be really important for Lanús and um, you know that table that takes them top of the table now with uh, with six points and they've got a healthy goal difference um, so yeah really really promising result for them after. 
some poor results in the league lately. I mean, apart from their Classico win over Banfield, f- fantastic performance against a, a pretty average Zulia side, to be honest, that they would have expected to win this. And, and they'll be, uh, yeah, they'll be happy that they did. Lanusa bounced back mightily impressively in the Libertadores since the opening week defeat to Nacional. Um, you know, first day came from behind to win away to Chapecoense, which isn't easy. And also, you know, with this 5 0 win, they've got the they've got the biggest margin of victory so far in the competition. So as Tom says, you know, it does look like they're getting getting back to their best again, or certainly near their best again which I'm quite pleased about as I tip them to go far in this competition. So I'm I'm hoping that we're going to see the best from them from now on. That win puts them on six points, as you mentioned, top of the table in Group 7. Simon, quickly on this Zulia side, you mentioned pre-pod, impressed by the midfield, but the forwards and the defense didn't really get it done. And, and that kind of shows in a 5-0 scoreline. Yeah, I mean, in the first half, it was it was more competitive. Zulia kind of lack a bit of composure and a little bit of, you know, strategic positioning and defense there's always a hole and if your teams if you're playing well you'll you'll find that hole um the defending's a little bit frantic at times they, you know they have some decent defenders who you know who do some make some good tackles some good interventions but you know the positioning and the lack of structure in the team means that it's always down to individual saving tackles and blocks and, and that's not going to do too well over over a qualifying campaign they have obviously the midfield is a bit more quality obviously Juan Aranjo can ping some balls about do some nice things uh, Savarino uh, playing further forward but once he gets into the final third they don't look particularly dangerous and in the defensive third they look quite vulnerable so they'll pick up points occasionally but they're definitely going to be up against it with a little bit of lack of structure and composure. Yeah, they they did pick up three points in this competition. They went away to Nacional to pick those up, which was certainly a bit surprising And after they had lost at home to Chapecoense. But it does look as though this group has kind of turned into a three-team race with Zulia on the outside looking in. And that's due in large part to Chapecoense's 1-1 draw with Nacional on Tuesday as well. Chape got outscoring quickly in this one. They earned a quick penalty, and Hinaldo put it in for a first-half goal from Chapecoense. Uh, but then before the end of the first half, Nacional had equalized. Uh, I believe it was Silveda coming back for Nacional. Uh, and then in the second half, neither team was able to find a winner. Chapecoense had an incredible chance. Tulio Gimelo, uh, their forward, got in a position where he was free, like three yards from goal. The ball was a little bit behind him, and in trying to drag it forward, he sent it straight off the post and it ricocheted wide and didn't go in. So Chapecoense definitely had a chance to win this match, uh, but did fall just short. Simon, what'd you make of this one? A pretty typical Uruguayan performance from Nacional to get a 1-1 draw away from home, no? Yeah, they, they did well. Uh, you know, Chapecoense have been impressive considering you know, this is a brand new team. They've rebuilt it really well. They've got a lot of good organization. Uh, Ronaldo looks, you know, looks like a decent player for them, like a... You know, intelligent player on the ball. You know they've got some good pace and some good, uh, you know, dangerous players across the pitch. Very athletic, very organised. But yeah, you know, Nacional, typical performance. You know, kept kept working, kept in it. They were very lucky with that goal. You described it. It hit the post and then rolled right across the goal line and got to the other side of the post. And yeah, you know that that's that's unfortunate. But you know, I think a fair result in the end. Um, Nacional will be you know relatively pleased with the. With the point, uh, Chapacuense uh, putting on a good show for themselves. They've really come together well in difficult circumstances. They look like a proper team already, which is incredible. They've picked up some good results so far. 
So, you know, I think fair, fair enough all-round result. Um, neither team will be particularly disappointed. Yeah, Hinaldo, who scored the goal for Chapecoense, the penalty, kind of really represents what this Chapecoense team, as currently constructed, kind of represents. You know, he's a player who was at Sao Paulo, wasn't really able to get in the side, you know, it was a move maybe to a club too big for him. So he came to Chapecoense and really found a home at that left back position, scored the penalty. And there's so many of those players in this Chapecoense side. You know, Wellington Paulista has never really shown up at a big club. He was at Ponchi Preta beforehand. Andre Giroto was in the Palmeiras team in and out. A couple more Palmeiras Lonis and Juan Pedro and Natan. So there's just a lot of these players all around for Chapecoense who aren't the biggest of names, haven't necessarily been successful at the biggest of clubs. But as you said, Simon, they've really come together as a team. And I think they're right in the fight for this group. You know, as I said, it looks like it's a three-team race at this point. Linus are probably in the best of shape. But Chapecoense can certainly feel that they can go to Uruguay and get a point, you know, in their next matchup. And who knows what could happen from there. So taking a look at this group seven, you know, we've got Lanus at six po- on six points, Nacional and Chapecoense each on four, and then Zulia on three. Tom, midway through the group stage now for these teams, looks as though Lanus is in good shape to qualify, but certainly could still see this group going a lot of ways going forward. Oh, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think Nacional and Chapecoense are always going to be tough to beat, and Lanus have shown that, especially in the league, that, you know, They'll they'll drop to these silly points here and there, you know. Like we've mentioned on previous pods, they've they've lost some star players like Miguel Almiron, who's doing great in the MLS, and you know they've still got the the solid base of a of a good team there. You know, Marcone and uh, Roman Martinez are, are really good in midfield, really solid, um, and Lauche Costas gives you great width on on the, on the wings. Their strength and depth isn't as good as it once was and yeah like I mentioned earlier a lot depends on Pepe Sand who you know he, he's getting on a bit he's not the most mobile he's just more of a, a penalty box operator and for some reason he just seems to do amazingly at Lanus and hasn't really done it many other places so sort of hinging all, all their success on on him might be might be the, might be the key to them going further in this tournament but I mean I think they could they should qualify first um, because you know the other the other teams aren't you know what you would traditionally say is some of the the strongest teams in the competition but I think um, that there shouldn't be a long run in the tournament for Lanus at, at present but you never know and you know if they can put in more performances like they did against Zulia then then yeah here's hoping. Adam, for you, looking at this Group 7, as Tom said, he would peg Lanus to come out first. Between Nacional and Chapecoense, can you pick a team that has impressed you more and you would give the better odds to getting out of this group? It seems tough. Yeah, it does. But I think Chapecoense struggled to kind of see out games. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure they've taken a lead in each of their games so far. They've only got four points to show for it. Before, you know, on the preview pods, I favoured Lanus and Nacional to come out of this group. And I think I'll stick by that by that uh, prediction. Simon, for you, anything different? No, I mean, I think obviously Lanus and Nacional are the kind of the traditional powers in the group. They've got a lot of experience at this level. You know, Chepacoense have shown a lot, a lot of, lot of heart, a lot of commitment, you know, surprising levels of organisation. I think it will be very, very tight. I think Nacional may have the experience to kind of see out these these important final games and get the 
the points just about that they need to edge ahead of Chapecoense. So I would say La uh, and Nacional are probably the favourites, but you know, don't don't rule out Chapecoense. As you said, Nacional never afraid to see out a match when they need to to get the result that that you know they need to at a point. Tough that they dropped points at home to Zulia. That was certainly not a result they were looking to take, but they bounced back well against Chapecoense to get to get an important point. And that's going to be a big match the next time those two teams meet. We'll finish up the final game on Tuesday. This one coming from Group 2. Uh, Sporting Cristal and the Strongest finished at a nil-nil draw. Adam, your thoughts? Not the most entertaining of games. I, I struggled to keep my eyes open for this one, to be, to be honest. It was incredibly dull. The Strongest just seemed to be happy with a point where uh, Cristal just lacked the quality to make a game of it, really. And they couldn't really bring the Bolivians out of their shell. So, you know, it was just it was just your typical stalemate, really. To be honest, I, I feel really disappointed with the strongest. You know, we picked them up a lot after qualifying rounds. Um, they entertained us greatly at that point. So far in the group stages, they've, they've looked a shadow of that side. Maybe it's to do with the quality of opposition they're coming up against. I've also got a feeling that it's perhaps something to do with their confidence, you know, they've, they've lost they've lost three or four games, I think, in the Bolivian League already this season. They recently got smashed in the La Paz derby uh, by Bolivar. That probably didn't help their their confidence levels at all. But yeah, I just I just feel like their key players like Escobar and Chumacero, Alonso, we just haven't seen the best of them for weeks now, and I'm starting to get concerned that they might not even make it through the group. Although I do, I do believe they still have two home games coming up, don't they, Austin? And and I think, yeah, they've got to win those if they are to progress. They do have group and- they do have those two home matches, and then also have a their last away trip is to Santa Fe, a team that, as we've seen, you can get a point off of if need be. How much of this performance would you put on the strongest not having Pablo Escobar in the midfield? Do you think that played a role in maybe the more defensive approach from them? I, f- I think I think that played the part, but they certainly. I think Escobar quite often acts as a focal point for the for the strongest um, going forward, uh, and he was missed in this one. But I st- I still feel that maybe the strongest will come good again, possibly. But at the moment, like I say, they just they just look like they're lacking a bit of confidence, to be honest. We will stick in Group 2 as we move to Wednesday's matches. Santos and Santa Fe played out another nil-nil draw. So if you're counting at home, that's two matches in this group with a combined zero goals this week. Simon, it was unfortunately everything we'd expected from a Santa Fe match. Santos were really unable to break down Santa Fe. For 75 minutes, this match was, to be honest, pretty dull. Uh, Santos then picked up a red card, went down to 10. The game livened up a bit thereafter, but it was a nil-nil in, in every sense of it. I don't want to be too harsh on Santa Fe. They, they have some okay players. They have some moments. Jonathan Gomez scored a couple of good goals last week uh, in the last game. Uh, the striker's not bad. Uh, yeah, but it was it was a very much a Santa Fe rather than a, a Santos game, to be honest. Um, we didn't see the best of guys like Lucas Lima for, for Santos. Santa Fe, you know, they'll be relatively satisfied. Obviously, this is one of the stronger... It's probably the strongest opponent in the group, at least on paper. Stronger than um, the strongest? Stronger than the strongest, yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, I think Santa Fe, you, you know, you get what you, you get what you expect with Santa Fe. Um, Stracula Rossi, the guy who played in England for a while, 
barely touched the ball, didn't do anything, to be honest. Um, was a bit of a strange inclusion, didn't really contribute, hasn't played particularly well so far. Yeah, overall, it was pretty flat. There was a few chances here and there. Uh, Omar Perez, the, the playmaker, came off the bench. He's getting a little bit old now, but he always makes a contribution. He came on and I was saying, look, watch out, Perez is going to change the game. And within about two minutes, he pinged a 60-yard ball perfectly onto the feet to the striker, through on goal. Bad, bad offside decision. Uh, it wasn't It wasn't offside. So, yeah, you know, in terms of the overall grouping, it's a home game for Santa Fe, so it's disappointing not to, uh, to pick up the win. But against probably the strongest side in the, the group, but keep saying the strongest. <laughs> um, it's it's not a terrible result. They're still in the mix. They've had they've missed a few chances overall so far in the the group. Um, they had quite a lot of chances against the strongest in the first game. Couldn't finish against Cristal. The finishing was there, mostly long range goals. Um, but again, it was a bit it was a bit flat tonight. So they're still in the mix. You know, the game, this group's particularly tight. Five points for Santos, four for Santa Fe, and four for the strongest. So it's very close. They're in the mix for three games to go. But uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the best of games. And Santa Fe were Santa Fe. They were athletic. They were competitive. They lacked a bit of composure in the final third. They weren't the most attractive of of games. But you know they're in the mix. They're in second position. So you know good good goods and bad good and bad things in this game. Before we get your thoughts, Austin, on this one, I just want to ask you guys if you saw the most entertaining part of this match, which was the minute silence held yes. for <laughs> Ricardo Oliveira, who was right there on the pitch at the time, by, by the announcer at the, at the stadium for Santa Fe announced that there was going to be a minute silence for a Santos player who was very much alive on the pitch at the time. thought that was um, peak Libertadores and not for the first or last time this week. Um, what, what I do like to say, that minute silence was for a legendary Santos player, actually, from the 60s, Keneko, who, who did sadly pass away earlier, earlier in the week. So, but yeah, it was, a, it was an unfortunate mistake, man. It was an unfortunate and, and sadly not entirely unexpected mistake. You know, as you said, it's it's the Libertadores. Something like that is is gonna happen every now and then, unfortunately. As far as Santos are concerned in this match, uh, I was a bit disappointed by Santos. You know, as Simon said, with Santa Fe, you know what you're going to get. I think Santos were able to come into this match very aware of what their opposition was going to try to do. It just didn't look like Santos had really any interest in engaging them or trying to hold possession and, and break them down. You know, you've got one of the best number 10s in Brazil in Lucas Lima. You've got some very dangerous wingers in Vitor Bueno and Bruno and Hiki. You've got Ricardo Oliveira, who despite being up in age, can still finish well. Thiago Maia can make runs from the midfield. And it just didn't look like Santos were playing to any of their players' strengths. And they really struggled to create chances in this match. And then, you know, even before they went down to 10 men, it looked like they were perfectly content with a point on the road. And they were wasting time. And the red card actually came from a time-wasting effort. Jean Mota did not feel like taking a free kick in a timely manner. So the official pulled out a second yellow card for him, sent him off. And then from there, of course, down to 10 men, Santos were going to do everything they could to hang on to that point. And yes, in a vacuum, this is a good result for them. It's a point away from home against a strong defensive team. They've yet to lose in this group. The old adage kind of is in Libertadores. If you win at home and draw on the road, you're going to go through. 
And they've done that so far. Draws against Cristal and Santa Fe and the home win against the strongest. But I expected more from Santos in this match. And I was a bit disappointed, not just that they didn't do more, but also by their mentality kind of throughout this match. It was frustrating to watch for me. But it was a good result for both Santa Fe and Santos. So that leaves group two. Three matches played for everybody. Santos on top with five. Santa Fe and the strongest each with four. Sporting Cristal with two. Tom, I'll come to you. How do you see this group where it's at right now? Santos look like they may be just a step above the other two teams. Santa Fe and the strongest could come down to the wire. Cristal have shown well, but it's probably hard to see them go through. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, despite some of the reservations about the strongest dip in form, I think those two home games are going to be crucial. Yeah, just the the fact that Santa Fe is struggling for goals means I think that the strongest might just pip them, but... I think it's going to be one of those two to go along with Santos. They're, you know, they're they're looking strong. I think they're just managing the group well. You know, the the two games might not have been the most thrilling to watch, but they've at least given us some excitement, kind of in the maths of it all. If you can, if you can get excited by that sort of thing. <laughs> and Simon, for you, what do you make of this group where you're at, and what do you make of Santa Fe's chances, especially to get out? Yeah, you know, I think obviously the strongest have been a bit underwhelming in the last two fix- fixtures, but. You know, this is a Bolivian side. They're going to put more priority on the home games uh, and they've got two coming up. So I think in terms of the game plan, in terms of the points, I think the strongest are in a pretty good position. Um, You know, having picked up the occasional point here and there on the road, on the, you know, away, they've got one point away, which is which isn't too bad for for a Bolivian side. So obviously we haven't seen the exciting attacking football and the impressive results of qualifying, but they have left themselves in a in a position which I think they would have taken at the the start of the campaign. Three games played, one point off the top, joint points with second, and then they've got two home games coming up, uh, which which they'll hope to win. Uh, obviously, it's going to be tricky, but I think uh, you know that will be the focus for them. And if they do that, then I think they'll go through. So it's tricky for Santa Fe. They're going to have to they're going to have to keep battling. They're going to have to finish better, create some more chances. You know, I think the pace and athleticism out wide um, can be particularly dangerous uh, away from home when teams are more likely to, uh, to attack. Santa Fe are pretty solid in defence. So I think they could upset a few teams on, on the road. But uh, yeah, they're not looking particularly exciting, particularly emphatic. But it's two teams, Santa Fe and the strongest, who are, are tricky opponents for, for, the, for the opposition. And it's going to come down to whoever can you know pick up something away from home and get the points at home. So I think the strongest will be be happier than than Santa Fe just because they have those two home games coming up where they'll try and get uh, six points and then that will put them through I'd, I'd expect and Adam for you on this group it looks like that that whole match for Santa Fe against the strongest could end up being where, where the second team to come out of this group is decided that's obviously one of the key games I think psychologically you know you've got the strongest with Sporting Cristal at home if they win that and Santa Fe lose away to Santos and the strongest certainly will look like they're in a very strong position at that point. And yeah, I, I, I'm still going to back the strongest to edge through. I'm certainly far less confident than I was when we first sort of previewed this group and after the first round of fixtures as well. Let's wait and see. But yeah, Santa Fe, very disappointing so far. In, in the Lippard stories, but I didn't really expect too much else. Um, another side who's been very disappointing has been Atletico Nacional. And I think we're probably 
going to move on to speak about them. And th- I think this is a perfect time for Simon to sort of address the issue of what is up with Colombian clubs in the Lippard stories this year. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think National in particular have, uh, you know, a certain, you know, certain, certain challenges, certain, certain difficulties. I think Santa Fe, you know, fair enough. They're in, they're in for a sh- in with a shout of qualification. They're in a decent position. They're not playing great football, but you know, it's been the case for a few years. So I don't think there's a great change there. Medellin will come to them shortly, but I think tricky conditions in the first game and a, a disappointing result in the second game, but, and they've upped it a little bit today. But Nacional is the really disappointing story. What they've done is they have the same core, the same defence is Boca Negra, uh, Najera, Alexis Enriquez and Farid Diaz. Farid Diaz has dropped off quite a lot. He's not looking anywhere near as comfortable as he was. But generally, it's the same defence. A few years older, well, a year older than last year with, with Alexis Enriquez, who's never been particularly quick. Reads the game well, but he has to sit very deep to to you know to deal with the fact that he's slower than the opposition strikers he faces so that's an issue um but the defense itself with Armani behind is is the same as it was last year more or less so that's that's not necessarily the issue but the problem is they've lost a few explosive dangerous players and the midfield some of the key passes I mean this time last year they had Sebastian Perez and Alex Mejia in in the holding midfield part pair both are excellent players. You know, Alex Mejia is one of the most underrated players in South American football. Very, very intelligent, moves the ball perfectly, always confident, always comfortable. And Sebastian Perez is a Colombian international now at Boca Juniors. You know, again, another very confident player on the ball. This week they had Alejandro Bernal and uh, uh, Diaz in the defensive midfield role player. That's just a big, big step down. I mean, Bernal has been with National for a number of years. He He's okay. He played at fullback before. He played solid midfield. He's quite good at defending. He makes the occasional decent forward pass, but he's nowhere near as comfortable isolated in possession. And the issue is the national midfielders are very, very isolated. The wingers play very wide and very high. The midfielders have a lot of pressure. If if the opposition have got three in the middle, which is the case for Estudiantes, they had you know five across the midfield. It meant that the two holding midfielders were very, very isolated. The only pass they had was back to Enriquez. And then National were playing it long. And when they do play it long, it's it's a big drop-off from what it was last year. They had John Mosquera, who is who is very poor. He's, I'm not a fan at all. Uh, and the, the fans are very disappointed that he played the full 90 minutes this week. And they have Dairo Moreno. So he was on the left wing and Dairo Moreno on the right wing. Again, Dairo Moreno, he's, he's not really a winger. He comes inside. He's a player with good technique, scores some excellent goals, has a very good finish make some nice passes but he kind of floats about and and in a formation where the manager's instructing the wingers to push wide he doesn't really contribute much I mean obviously on his side I think Bocanegro and Moreno is a lot stronger than Farid Diaz who's dropped off and and John uh, Mosquera but you know the formation without having players who are very very confident at taking the ball under pressure and you know without having that movement in midfield it doesn't work uh, they had Aldo Lea Ramirez, who for me is a is a good player, but I would rather see him one of those deeper midfield positions um, because he's good on the ball, good at distributing. But Diaz and, uh, and Bernal just really can't. And then up front, they had Luis Carlos Ruiz, who wasn't very good when he was at Nacional. 
moved to Brazil, wasn't very good, and came back. And the managers of Nacional were trying to convince everyone, no, 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 he was good before Nacional, so maybe he's going to be good again. And, and really, he isn't. So it's just a massive drop-off. I, you know, the, the start of the campaign, I was hoping they'd brought Edwin Valencia back from Brazil, a former Colombian international uh, holding midfielder. But he seems to have completely dropped off for me. He wasn't even on the bench for this game. They were missing Mateo Soribe, who's an important player. And obviously, Magnelli Torres is very good at distributing the ball. But it looked like a very, very average side in midfield. And they couldn't find the passes in the midfield. So they were lumping it long to to a striker who's not very good, a, a winger who doesn't you know, doesn't stay in position, isn't pacey in Deon Moreno, and John Mosquera, who's pretty insignificant in the game. So they've gone from being good to having a solid defence and being pretty poor. So depressingly bad game for Nacional. But I mean, what do you think from the Estudiantes side of things? One of the most baffling things for me is just how little energy Atletico Nacional seem to have. It just looks like they're running on empty. It just doesn't. They don't look like they've 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 got much gas in the tank really. In, in this defeat to Estudiantes, which made it three defeats out of three now for them. So they're on the verge of of going out, the Libertadores. Um, and also in their previous defeats to Botafogo and Barcelona. It just felt, yeah, it just felt very sluggish all the time, on and off the ball, especially in the midfield. You know, in this game, I'll give Tom a chance to, to speak in a minute about Estudiantes. But obviously, Veron started... Again, this week, when Sebastian Veron, Veron, Nelson Vivas didn't follow my advice and Dave's advice to drop him to the bench. But Veron in this game, he just seemed to find a lot more time and space a lot more easily than he did, say, against Barcelona last week. And I think that's just down to the fact that Barcelona were a lot more hungry, a lot more organised, a lot more energy in the midfield to close him down. Just felt like Nacional stood off of him. Uh, and and allow Veron to to kind of get on the ball a lot more than he did last week. What did you make of that, Tom? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely of the same opinion of, of you and Dave that Veron coming back was was a massive gamble. You know, you can't really say no to him as he's the president of the club. But at 42 years old, you question: Is he going to have the legs to sort of deal with, especially some of these energetic sides like Barcelona? But I think Estudiantes were fortunate to come up against another you know relatively clunky side um much kind of quite similar to themselves very well organized defensively you know but and got two pacey wide men but never the type of team to sort of blow opponents away but you know the gamble to um bring Veron back in well to keep Veron in the starting lineup paid off because it was his free kick that um led to the, the, the first goal um, he sort of whipped a whipped a ball in, and it was a great save from Armani. Uh, it was Sanchez following up, and his shot crashed against the bar, and then just kind of bobbled down and hit Javier Toledo, who was just kind of standing there about two yards out. And despite uh, Armani's best efforts, it was uh, it was the one goal they needed, and and they managed to hang on and brought Veron off after 55 minutes, and brought on Ascasivar, who's a a really energetic young defensive midfielder compared to Mascherano quite a lot of the time. So that, I think, gave them the dynamism to see the rest of the game out. Um, but if you look across that team, there's plenty of experience in De Sabato, Schunke in defence, and Dujar in between the posts. You know, he's still getting in the Argentina squad. 
Branya as well in defensive midfield. So I think um, Estudiantes really just sort of set their stall out to be compact, organised and see if they could nick that goal. And, you know, it was an absolutely vital win for them because that was their first win of the tournament as well. Um, and they were in danger of uh, losing touch with um, Botafogo and Barcelona. So they'll be absolutely thrilled with that because, you know, they've, they've picked up a bit of form in the league lately. Um, but they, they went on a terrible slump sort of at the end of last year after, well, they were the form team right at the start of the year with, uh, ten, I think, 10 unbeaten. So at that point, I was thinking that Estudiantes were looking like one of the, the better Argentine sides, like Atletico Nacional. I think um, they've, they've struggled and this, you know, hopefully can kickstart um, their tournament. And, uh, you know, they've still got... There's still four points behind the other two teams, but you know it's uh, it's given uh, gives them a glimmer of hope now. Simon, one final question for you on Atlético Nacional. You and Adam were talking about how it just looks like the energy isn't there, and they just feel a little bit gassed. Do you think some of that has to do with just the sheer amount of football that this team played last year? I know that most of the first team hardly played in the Colombian league last year. But when you add up the Libertadores, the Sulamericana that they played, the Club World Cup that they played, there's just been a lot of miles on these players. Do you think they've just kind of hit the point where there's really no return for them and that energy just isn't there anymore? I think one of the key issues is, you know, I keep coming back to it, but I think the two holding midfield players have such a big role with Adias and, uh, and Bernal. And when they're playing with wingers uh, who don't track back, uh, Daido Moreno is never going to track back. Uh, John Mosquera puts in a bit of a shift, but he's very ineffective defensively. And then, so what they do is they have a 4-2-3-1, but the two are very, very isolated. And these are two players who've always been fringe players for Atletico Nacional. They've never been the key, you know, the key men in that position. So when they have such an important role, I think, because when you saw last year with Mejia, he would have two men on him and he'd take the ball and he'd turn and he'd, make a good pass. He never seemed to lose it. But Nacional are very exposed when either Bernal or, or Arias fail to make a pass or have a, have, you know, find themselves shut off and get the ball intercepted. And then it's just a straight run to the defence, which again is sitting very, very deep. So they've got 30 yards to run at the defence and break. And the midfield isn't going to track back because that's not what the midfield does. So I think maybe it's partly that. Maybe it's partly... The drop-off, you know, they had such an amazing year last year and it's kind of underwhelming. A lot of the most important players have been taken from the team and what's left, maybe don't have the confidence, maybe kind of feel a bit flat after every all of the events of last year. But yeah, you know, and again, they were missing Mateo Soriba, they were missing Magnelli Torres, who are two of the better players. And in the league, they're still consistently picking up wins. They're at the top of the table. But I think the difference is with the league and the Libertadores, in the league, you can be organised, you can have a long-range goal or a corner and, and that will be enough. But in the Libertadores, it's a step up in general. Uh, and I think they're really struggling. I think the formation with the personnel they have is really making the players found out because they have a number 10 who's a proper number 10 who's, who plays just behind the striker. And the wingers don't track back. So basically your midfield at times is the four defenders who are playing very deep. And then the two defensive midfielders have so much to do that I think that may be the reason why they look so sluggish because the the workload is so much that they keep it conservative, they keep the position deep 
And then it means that there's a lot of space, a lot of space in that midfield, especially when they play against five across the middle. So I think with the personnel national have, there's there's real issues in terms of being effective across the pitch, in terms of defensively, in terms of being caught out on the counter. I think an aging defence plus wingers who don't track back and a number 10 who plays further forward means there's so much on those two players. And, and right now they're two of Nationals' weakest players. No points from three matches, just one goal scored. We'll get to this group as a big picture in a bit when we talk about Barcelona and Botafogo. But quickly, Simon, is there any chance, do you think, for Nacional to get out of this group? <laughs> you know, it, there's there's no reason to think they will at this point. I mean, okay, so against Barcelona in the second half, they were pressing. They looked okay. They weren't too bad. Botafogo was just a flat game. They were, again, they had a lot of possession, but Botafogo hit them on the counter and, and scored. I just think... If you're smart against Nacional, if you have some pace to hit them on the counter, then then there's goals. So I think Nacional will pick up some points in this group, and I think they will be competitive in the final games, and I think they will get some results. But seven points off qualifying, I can't see it happening. <laughs> it's, it's a hard math to make work in your mind when you really think about what they would have to do to get out. Disappointing campaign for them so far. We'll move to another match on Wednesday now. Uh, Akike 4-1 winners away to Zamora in Venezuela. A big result for Akike in Group 8. These two teams came into this match. Neither had collected a point yet. And Adam, it was really a top-to-bottom performance dominant for Akike. They scored twice in the first 20 minutes and just ran over this Zamora team in this match. And you think that was in part due to something we don't see all the time, they got their tactics right. Yeah, indeed. In the lead-up to this one, uh, their manager, uh, Jaime Vera, had kept his cards quite close to his chest. He did hint that there would be a change of tactics. And, um, and yeah, he, he changed formation slightly. He, he, he moved Ranero, who usually plays in the midfield. He moved him up front to play close to Ramos, just off of him. And it worked a treat, really. Akike went 2-0 up in this one early on. Bielkovic with a brace in the first half. So one from the penalty spot and the other a bullet header following a neat move. And in the second half, yeah, Akike ran away with it, really. Renero, who was really key in this match, um, he started and finished another good move to make it 3-0. Zamora grabbed one back, but veteran striker and Akike legend Manuel Villalobos sealed it for the Chileans to make it 4-1. So a 4-1 victory away from home for a Chilean side is obviously very impressive. That's the best result, home or away, any Chilean side has got. Goal margin-wise since uh, Huachapato went to Venezuela in 2013 and beat Caracas 4-0. Huachapato ended up just being edged out by, by Gremio, I think it was. That year, let's hope from a Chilean's perspective that the same fate doesn't befall Akike this year. Looking looking at their chances coming up, they've got Zamora at home next, win that, and suddenly they have a real hope of progressing because it will, it will mean that they'll either be one or two points off of second place in, in this group. And, and they know if they get something away to Guarani, it probably means that they need to beat Grêmio at home to, to qualify. So... Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting position um, they've got themselves into. They've hauled themselves back from which looked like a very tricky situation. I didn't expect them to beat Zamora, to be honest, because, again, in the in the pre-match um, comments, like coming out of Akike, 
you know, I, I, I read their newspaper here every day and I was reading I was reading the, the comments from the manager and the players in the lead up to this and again, a bit like before that Gremio game, it just seemed very negative. You know, they were talking about, you know, the league is the main aim and, you know, the Liberty story is just a bonus. It's a long way back for them now. They know this. So, yeah, they seem to head into it in a, in a negative frame of mind, but it certainly didn't show on the pitch. And even more impressive from their point of view, they had just lost their unbeaten record in the league just a few days before this one. They lost at home to Huachapato in the weekend before this. It's really interesting to see that they've bounced back. And, and I think that this victory will give them great confidence, um, not only in the Libert stories, but but in the league, which they're still challenging Colo Colo for. I think the difficulty for them is going to be that, yes, they have that Zamora match at home, but both Gremio and Guarani still have a match against Zamora as well. So they are going to have to, as you said, get it done head-to-head at some point. But they have put themselves in a position where it looks as though they'll probably have a chance to get out of this group. And after a, no points from your first two matches, you know that's not a terrible place to be. Yeah, in, in, indeed, indeed. And uh, Guarani and Gremio, you know, battled a 1-1 draw tonight, I believe. I think we're going to speak about that later. You know, both those sides are on seven points, you know, four points clear of Akika at this point. But, you know, like I say, uh, the situation can look very different next after after the next week's games. And psychologically for Akika, uh, if they beat some more at home next week, they feel that they've got a real chance of progression. We'll move to the final match of Wednesday night. Libertad of Paraguay, 1-0 winners against Atletico Mineiro. In this one, uh, Libertad were able to to score the goal that proved to be the difference. A lot of rain in this match. I think that did play an effect on this one. I thought the pitch actually held up fairly well here, all things considered. There were puddles, but certainly not to the point as we've seen in some other Libertadores matches. The goal for Libertad scored by Lucena really illustrated what has been the problem for Atletico Mineiro for years now, seemingly. It's that the defense just ends up way too wide open, and it was right up the middle, a pass back. Lucena finished home. Just too much space for players inside the 18, and that has haunted Gallo for a very long time. So a big result for Libertad, a big three points for them. Gallo, not the greatest of results, and, and it looks like Gallo might be the team trying to fight for second place with Libertad in good shape so far in this one. As I said, the defense for Gallo has been an issue for a while. It, it showed again. Uh, Fregi wasn't quite on form in this one, and I was actually very intrigued to see that Jose Machado made a change in the second half and actually took Fregi off. He brought Rafael Mora, another forward, on at halftime. Maybe tried to go to a two-forward look. That didn't quite work out. So then took Fregi off, left Rafael Mora as the lone striker. Juan Casades came on for Romulo Otero, the Venezuelan. There were a couple chances for Gallo in this match, but it, it never really seemed like they found their form. And that's going to put them on four points in this group. A disappointing result defensively once again for them. They will get their starting goalkeeper, Victor, back soon. Uh, but it's not been the goal. Goalkeeping has not been the issue for them. It's been everything else with the defense. And they've just consistently struggled to find strong center backs. And that's shown up time in, time in in this tournament. You know, they found themselves 2-1 down to a Bolivian side at home because of the defense. We've seen it in the state leagues. We've seen it in, in the domestic Brasileirão. So that's going to be the issue for Atletico Mineiro going forward. Them and Libertad both on four points. Godoy Cruz, who we'll talk about in a second, on seven. Sport Boys on one in this group. So Galo are still right in it. 
Uh, they've got a home match against Libertad coming up. I think they've got to return the favor and get three points from that match uh, to look at where they're at in this group and put themselves in a good position. We'll move from the Wednesday matches to Thursday, and we will start with the other match in this group, which is Group 6. Godoy Cruz, the Argentines, 2-0 winners against Sport Boys of Bolivia. Tom, I'll come to you with this. Godoy Cruz on seven points and in pretty good shape. Yeah, it's quite surprising, really, because um, going into the, the Libertadores, like, they looked one of the weaker sides from the Argentinian contingent. You know, they were, I think they're about mid-table in the league at the moment, which in Argentina means 16th um, for their stupid 30-team league. But um, yeah, they've they've come. They're doing really well in a what I would have considered a you know a tough group uh, beforehand. You know, Atlético Mineiro, Libertad. They're both you know strong sides and always difficult to beat. Sport Boys, a bit of an unknown quantity. So the fact they managed to get a two uh, 0 victory tonight against Sport Boys was you know job done for them. And they made um, you know they didn't make too much hard work out of it. Um, you know, the straight from the off, the most. Uh, eye-catching thing was that sport boys had uh, didn't have their kit with them because they'd accidentally sent it to um san juan instead of uh, mendoza so they had these horrible kind of snot green training kits that just sort of said fair play on them um so that that was a bit of a classic libertadores um start to the yeah. game bolivian bolivian administration at its best again Something, uh, something which seems to pop up on this podcast many a time. Peak Libertadores once again. Exactly, especially after the um, uh, Atletico Tucumán shirt scenario. It's, uh, it seems like it's becoming a running theme now. But then, yeah, they the the second the first half was pretty even. Godoy Cruz dominated um, more or less, but you know, Sport Boys were cautious, but they still were a threat on the break and had a couple of long range efforts that that sailed wide. But then in the second half, Godoy Cruz kind of stepped it up a little bit. Paul Fernandez uh, scored quite a scrappy goal, but you know I think that was what broke uh, Sport Boys' uh, resolve. Yeah, the cross came in, Paul Fernandez headed it, but then the clearance was straight back at him, and he just kind of apologetically passed it into the net. And then the second goal was pretty scrappy as well. It was like a long punt down the right-hand channel, which I think it was Angel Gonzalez. Um, he kind of just turned his man, got free, and squared it for Javier Correa, who kind of slid in with the keeper. I think there might have been a, a case that you could have potentially argued there was a foul on the goalkeeper. But either way, he was kind of able to turn the loose ball in. Sort of, Well, he was like on his backside, but he still managed to swivel and get it in. So, you know, they'll be really happy that, you know, they've they've got seven points after three games. Um, the, the win against Libertad was was uh, really, really good. And the fact that the other guys in the group uh, drew means that, yeah, they've, uh, they've actually found themselves in a really advantageous situation that uh, I don't think they were expecting. So they're actually looking like, you know, they, they could qualify from, you know, a tough group now. Yeah. They're in, they're in first position in this group on seven points with Gallo and Libertad behind them with four Adam, on Sport Boys, you look at the sheer numbers of it, one point from three matches, five goals for, ten goals against. It's not terribly impressive, but we've seen this team play three fairly okay matches for a Bolivian side that's not at altitude, was a relative unknown coming to this competition. I think you have to be somewhat impressed by what they've shown, and you have to at least be 
acknowledge the fact that they've come to play. They haven't come to just sit back. And I think a bit of a golf clap, if you will, for them, for what they've been able to show so far in this tournament. <laughs> what did you say? A it golf clap. A golf you know, like a little, a little like a, <laughs> like not a round of applause. Like it's not like it's been that good. Oh, uh, right. Like, okay. A little tap of a clap, you know, credit to them for what I... they've shown. Okay. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you off that one. We'll we come to one of your other phrases in a minute. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've kind of been impressed by Sport Boys, actually. I know they've only got one point from three games, but I think they're a decent football inside. They, they scored five goals in their first two matches. They certainly had a couple of chances in the first half to, to score uh, tonight as well. Um, the fact they didn't, and then in the second half, they didn't seem to... I, I think it was a combination of Godot Cruz stepping up their game in the second half and Sport Boys losing a bit of concentration, a little bit of organisation. And I, I think that first goal sort of broke their spirit a little bit because they didn't they didn't seem to put up much of a fight after that. And um, yeah, although it only finished 2-0, it could have quite easily been 3 or 4 by the end of it. But I, I don't think you can completely rule them out because they've still got a couple of home games coming up. I'd fancy them to probably finish bottom of this group but yeah they've certainly shown glimpses of of being a decent side and they've certainly not been kind of a disgrace to the competition or something like that which i think some people thought they might be heading into heading into it messi doro has certainly been an impressive player for them the youngster uh... yeah definitely I've, I've really liked the look of him yeah, I spoke. I spoke quite a bit about him. I think in the in the first week that we did, um, when he impressed in the three three draw against uh, Libertad, he's a, he's a very interesting player on loan from Boca Juniors, of course. Certainly one to keep an eye on. Simon, I'll come to you first for the big picture here in Group Six. Three matches played: Godoy Cruz on seven, Slatico Minato and Libertad on four, Sport Boys on one. What do you see coming out of this group? As Tom kind of said, Godoy Cruz maybe unexpectedly now in first place. Gallo the big name, but haven't been terribly impressive. Libertad in there as well. And as Adam said, maybe can't rule Sport Boys out. I don't think Sport Boys will will qualify. Um, maybe a sort of many kind of place if things go their way, but I can't see them picking up points consistently in the remaining games. Uh, but I think that will be that will be a factor in the, the the final three games of this group. I think I think Godoy Cruz look good. I think Godoy Cruz will probably be confident to get through. Minero have been very up and down. Didn't look very good from what I saw against Libertad. The next game is always going to be really important. Uh, I think it could be a if Libertad get the points uh, against Minero, I think that'll be a big boost for them uh, at home. So yeah, I think I think Minero might miss out on this one. Obviously, they've got some very good players. Robinho, Fred always seems to find the net, but I think it's going to be tricky for them. I think I think if Libertad get the win in the next game, and I would imagine Godoy Cruz would would pick up the win against Sport Boys. Um, I think. It leaves them a little bit adrift, you know, three points, three points off with two games to go. I think Libertad, the next game will be very, very important. If Minero don't lose, I think they're going to go through. If they do lose, I think it will be very tricky with the final two games coming up. And it's not as though, it's not as though Minero are a good enough side to play to not lose. As we've said, the defense has been the issue, so it's hard to see them keeping a draw. They're at home, the pressure's going to be on them. Yeah, I think it's still really in the balance. Um, I think even though Godoy Cruz have got this strong position, they still could end up missing out because I, I do think Libertad are a wily old team who have got some good players. And I think Atletico Mineiro will come good eventually. Um, they seem pretty inconsistent to me um, in their performances and just kind of cross 
their team. So you never know. They could flatter to deceive and go out early, but I think it it could really be any two of those three. So that's that's me sitting on the fence a little bit. But I think, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting for sure. It just feels like Minato have too much talent to go out early. But they, as you said, as you all have said, they've just not impressed so far. We will move back to Group 8 here for another match on Thursday. This was a 1-1 draw between Gremio and Guarani. Uh, coming into this match, very, very intriguing storyline here. Gremio, one of the stronger teams in Brazil, were on both these teams were on six points coming into this match in relatively good shape. On the road in Asuncion, um, Gremio are in the middle of the semifinals of the, the Rio Grande do Sul State League in Brazil. They drew 1-1 with Novo Hamburgo at the weekend. They have the second leg of that this weekend. There was some chatter that Renato Gaúcho, their manager, was going to send out a reserve side with an eye on the state leagues. It seemed as though everyone had traveled to Paraguay, uh, and then he did send out that reserve side. He kept the number one goalie, Marcelo Groe, there, but other than that, this was pretty much a backup side for Gremio. Uh, Lucas Bajos was up top, the youngster Lincoln was in attack, and Gremio played well starting off in this match. They created some chances, they were right there, but then what changed this match were really the two starters for Gremio. Uh, it was Marcelo Groe. The one regular starter who got the start here made some saves to keep them in this match early. And then Pedro Halsha, their dangerous attacker, came off the bench and scored the goal for Gremio that got them back level after they had gone down to 10 men and conceded the opener to Lopez of Guarani. So a pretty impressive result for Gremio, playing with reserves on the road. They're on seven points now with Guarani, so good on them. And Pedro Halsha was very impressive, changed this match coming off the bench for Gremio took the goal very well, and had a chance to make it 2-1 for them, went off the post. So a good result for Gremio in some really intriguing circumstances. Adam, you certainly don't see that every day. I, I didn't realize that, actually, until you said it, because I was, I, was uh, I was watching a different game at, at the time. So, yeah, that's, that's certainly a very impressive result for, from, from Gremio to get a point with, like you say, a reserve side. Uh, yeah, a couple other things on this one. Firstly, didn't Marcelo Palau get man of the match again? And if he did, he was a player I pointed out on the preview pods. And if he did, I think that's three matches out of three that he's managed to pick up the man of the match award, the midfielder for Guarani. I didn't see if he picked up man of the match. I didn't stick around long enough after, but uh, I'll take your word for it. Some, we'll give it to I him. Saw, I, saw some, I saw some chatter on Twitter about that. Talking about Twitter... Um, I just want to ask Tom and Simon if they know what a sidewinder is. Do you know what a sidewinder is? <laughs> because that's how Austin describes one of the shots in this game. Is it a snake? That's what I'd think it would be. <laughs> sidewinder, so, yeah. Like a, hur- <laughs> like a hurricane or... I don't know. Well, yeah. Maybe, I googled maybe it and it was a snake. So that's a great guess. But I don't know what that has to do with football. All right, so... Here's how this happened. So I feel like when I tweet a football match, I use the same words over and over and over. And when you watch a lot of football in a span of a short amount of days, you try to come up with new ways to describe things. So in American baseball, sidewinder is a term that is used to describe pitchers who throw sidearm in baseball. And so it does come from the snake. Originally, it's a snake that I I guess moves side to side rather than straight forward. And so it's this sidearm motion from a pitcher, and that's what it looked like the shot attempt was doing. It was, I guess, you know, kind of a half volley chance 
where the player was reaching sideways with his leg to poke at it. So it seemed like the words fit for me. And so I went with it. I ran with it. I put Sidewinder down. Apparently nobody understood what it was, but I thought it was a decent use of a term. And it was an okay way to describe what had happened. Again, it didn't come off, but not all tweets are going to be winners. I love your passion for the word, but I still literally have no idea what it means. <laughs> so that It's evocative. I like it. Stick with it, you maverick. The offensive tackle hit a 40-yard sidewinder past the goaltender. Oh no. Oh no. Again, you know what? It didn't work. That's fine. Whatever. We're fine. <laughs> no, I, I saw bits of pieces of this game. Wow, Lucas Barrios couldn't couldn't score. No, he, had, he couldn't. He, so he hasn't scored chances. for a while now. Oh, and um, Fernandinho, the, he looked quite good. He looked quite impressive, but again, he couldn't score either. He did lots of he went on a, like a 40-yard run, beat five or six players, and then just rolled it straight at the goalkeeper. So what I saw, yeah, you know, Gremio started started off stronger, and then they kind of lost grip of the game. They, they had three or four chances and couldn't put it in the goal, and it and it gave uh, Guarani a chance to come back into it. And, you know, that would be disappointed as well not to, have, not to have held on for the win. But, yeah, interesting game. Uh, but I think the biggest story from what I saw was Gremio's awful finishing kind of undermining some of the good play they, they, they put together. Important to note this Fernandinho, not that Fernandinho at Manchester City, just in case you got a little confused. That happens in Brazil all the time. All these guys have all the same names. Also in this match, uh, another poor refereeing decision, I thought, the second yellow card to Michel for Gremio. It was an off-the-ball play. He kind of nudged the player with an outstretched arm. Uh, the Guarani player made a meal of it, threw his head back, uh, and our old friend Wilma Roldan, the Colombian referee who always seems to find himself in the middle of these controversies, came out, gave Michelle a second yellow and a red, and that could have definitely changed the match. Simon, does Roldan have a reputation in Colombia for being a poor official, or is this just something that happens at the Libertadores <laughs> level? No, I think Colombian officials in general, for me, they will give pretty much everything. There's, there's a few who make some exceptions, but I think generally uh, the general unwritten rule of Colombian official officiating is make the decision that seems least controversial. <laughs> so if someone goes down holding their head, then just give them whatever they want and take 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 action. So um, yeah, I think that's one of the issues in Colombian football um, is that the referees often will give whatever they think they don't want to they don't want to be contrarian basically. So Colombian officials in general tend to, if you go down holding your head, they'll they'll give you the benefit of the doubt as opposed to the defender. So, yeah, it's it's something that happens quite a lot. And, and, and that's what happened here in this match. Looking at Group 8 now, Gremio and Guadani are both level on seven points. Akike back of them in third with three. Zamora at the bottom with no points. Adam, we talked about this when we talked about Akike. Gremio and Guarani seem to be in good shape, but as you said, things could look very different next week. If Akike get three points against Zamora and Gremio and Guarani draw that match, all of a sudden all these teams are going to be bunched up. So still a lot to be decided in Group 8. Yeah, there is. Um, but yeah, you would still probably back the Paraguayans and the Brazilians to make it through. But another point that I do want to point out, you know, Gremio were 3-0 up on Akike last week. Akike had lost their first game as well. So not only did they have zero points, they would have had a terrible goal difference as well if they hadn't fought back in that match. But the fact that they did fight back in that match and then won 4-1 this week, you know, suddenly they've got a positive goal difference as well to build on. 
So, yeah, um, like I said earlier, Akike can't give up hope yet. Tom, for you, looking at Group 8, what do you make of it as it, as it sits currently? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's hard to argue with the way it's sitting at the moment, as much as I think Akike have brought themselves back into contention. I think um, they might just find themselves a little bit short to keep up with Guarani, who I've been I've been quite um, impressed with, actually. I mean, yeah, they maybe didn't take advantage of the uh, the extra man and the uh, the reserve Gremio team tonight, but I've, I've been pleasantly surprised by them. And I think Gremio, despite not being a perfect side, should uh, qualify comfortably. So, it, I mean, it's similar in, in some ways to the Group 1 in terms of Estudiantes have given themselves a, a, a glimmer of hope, but I think that four-point gap is is uh, not insurmountable, but maybe a bit too much. And Simon, for you, anything different? No, I think uh, Gremio look look very good. Guarani have been there, done that. Experienced team, some good quality. So I think uh, the the four positions they're in now are probably how they're going to finish. I will say on Gremio before we move on from this match. On their best, I think they've looked like one of the better teams in this competition. Uh, unfortunately for them, we've really only seen that best for a half at home against Akike. As we said, that second half, they kind of fell off. They weren't terribly impressive in their away win to Zamora, but certainly did the job. And then with a reserve side, it's tough to draw any conclusions from tonight. So I would like to see a strong performance from them against a Guadagni side that will most likely sit back and defend when these two teams meet uh, at the other end of Gremio in Porto Alegre. But on their best, Gremio, I think, can play with just about anybody in this competition. Just two matches left. We will come back to you, Simon, for this one. Medellin were in desperate need of points. It was a do-or-die night for them. They took on Melgad, who were on three points. Medellin came in on, on no points. Got a pretty comfortable 2-0 win, and they're back in the conversation, at least in Group 3. Yeah, no, it was, it was much improved by Medellin. Obviously, for the previous game they had, uh, Juan Fernando Quintero was, was unavailable. Uh, he came back from injury shortly after, played, played the weekend after the last game in the Libertadores. But, but he's back, and he's an important player for Medellin. Also back is Leonardo, uh, Leonardo Castro. He came off the bench in the last game, but very late, and... He's a very good player. Um, he's relatively young, 22, 23. Scored loads and loads of goals at Pereira. Has been very good from Medellin, but was out for seven or eight months. So he's back to fitness. They've also got uh, Juan Fernando Caicedo back. So this is this is more like the full-strength Medellin side. Um, and they were very good. They Again, the opposition wasn't particularly strong, but Memgar weren't too bad. Um, but it was a very, very good performance by Medellin, really. Um, they have got a strong team, and it's a team that I've, I've really expected good things from. They, you know, they weren't outstanding, but they were a lot better. The the defense, uh, Andres Mosquera, uh, is a you know a tall, athletic, strong defender, and he's playing alongside Juan Camilo Saiz, who's a player I really really like. He was at Envigado. He had a short spell, I believe, in Argentina. Um, didn't really pay off, but he's a player with a lot of class, and that's a nice combination for me at centre back. Mosquera's the powerful ball winner whereas Camilo Saiz is one of those defenders who never gets dirty shorts you know he's always always on his feet always reading the game well with Marlon Pedreita and uh, Luis Arias playing uh, at fullback again these are two offensive players um, but with Didier Moreno in front of the defense kind of playing in the Carlos Sanchez role uh, you know he does for Colombia 
kind of as the destroyer. And then alongside him, Cristiano Marugo. Again, a very, very nice player. Mixed midfielder, can defend, can go forward. Good quality on the ball. And uh, John Hernandez, again, you know, a good all-round solid player. You know, that's For me, that's a really good uh, kind of attacking uh, base to the to the team. Juan Fernando Quintero in front. And then they had uh, Valentin Viola, who's a, a guy from Argentina. Played, started his career at Racing Club and then moved to uh, Sporting uh, in Portugal. And then since then has played in Turkey, has played in uh, Cyprus, has played in the Belgium second division last year. So he's an interesting inclusion. Echelar, another Argentinian, hasn't been playing so well. So Viola got the, got the start and he scored a goal and he played pretty well. And then up front they have Leonardo Castro and then they also have uh, uh, Juan Fernando Caicedo, who's like a target man, number nine, come off the bench. So for me, it's a much, much stronger Medellin side. It's a side that plays, you know, they've got good technical players across the pitch. For me, this should be the the way they set up, playing guys like Juan Valencia, who is rubbish. <laughs> like he, he runs around a lot, has a really nice free kick. He's been a player, you know, played for Nacional, played for big teams in Colombia throughout his career, but he's rubbish he's got a terrible touch and doesn't have a great footballing brain he's not a player rate at all so for me playing with the technical players looking to keep the ball looking to use it well looking to get the ball to Quintero Quintero's got quality you know there was lots of nice passing moves at times from Medellin wasn't a perfect performance but at the end they were pushing for a third and you know they looked like they could have got three or four at the end so much much better much more what I want to see from the Colombian teams, a team full of good technical players passing the ball. Uh, and I think if Medellin stick with this team, they'll they'll look to potentially get the points to stay in this competition. I think they've got a lot of good players and this was much better. And yeah, so some good news for Colombian teams finally in the tournament. River Plate and Emelec did not play this week. So those are the only two teams that have yet to play three matches in this competition. I believe they have a match in one of the weeks where that's the only match that week so they'll make it up then so that puts Medellin in decent position as it stands now Simon if the results go their way in those River Plate Emelec matches River Plate may run away with this group but Medellin can certainly be right there in competition for second yeah I think I think from what I've seen I think Medellin on their day are better than both Emelec and Melgar and hopefully from a Colombian perspective River Plate win against Emelec and that means there'll be River Plate on nine points and the rest on three um, in, in that game that they've got to make up. If that happens, and I think Medellin, uh, if they can keep playing this way, they can keep concentrating at the back. Again, I think the first game against River Plate was literally a washout, um, knee-deep in puddles and the ball didn't move. And it was a couple of free kicks that bobbled around in the penalty area or floated around in the penalty area and were bundled in. So... I think you can't read too much into that game. The second game, Quintero was missing. Caicedo was missing. Uh, I think Medellin were far weaker. They played not the strongest side from, from my from my perspective. So I think with this 11 on the pitch, I think Medellin will qualify from this group. And I think that hopefully they can continue to build into this tournament. The problem is Quintero might be off back to Europe uh, in the summer, which would be a big, big blow to their chances in the latter stages if they get through. Adam or Tom, anything you want to add on this match? Yeah, I just want to mention my my love for Juan Fer Quintero as well. Like he's been probably one of my favourite players that I've seen come through in the last five years. Like as part of that under twenty Colombia squad, he was just absolutely brilliant. So I'm hoping that he sticks around and that 
um, Medellin have have enough to to sneak through in second place. I think from uh, from River Plate's point of view, this was a this was a good result because it kept you know everyone three points back, um, and they've still got a game in hand. Um, I think if they can get at least a point away at Emelec, they'll be happy with that, and then they they'll be confident in beating them at home. Uh, they they're getting in some good form, and Riusi and Alario are probably two of the best young strikers in the competition. So um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's looking good for Medellin, um, and I, yeah, I'm I'm backing them to qualify along with River Plate. We'll move to the final match of this week's set of games. Uh, Adam, you and I were talking pre-pod that not often do we have a week where we find the UEFA Champions League to be, be a bit more entertaining, maybe than the Libertadores. But certainly, it wasn't this week. wasn't everything that we've known this competition can be. And really, the only truly standout game for us was this final match, this Barcelona-Botafogo match. Finished 1-1, all level. Terrific atmosphere, as always, at these Barcelona home matches. Botafogo came out looking like world beaters, missed a penalty in the first three minutes. Vangueta, the goalkeeper for Barcelona, made a number of saves in the first half to first keep this level and then protect the 1-0 lead that they found. Botafogo did come back and, and equalized late after Barcelona had gone down to 10 men. saw with a somewhat controversial penalty that got this back to 1-1. Adam, this was the Libertadores that we know and love, this match right here. Ah, uh, definitely. And this was probably Botafogo's best performance so far in the Libertadores. I've been pretty harsh on them so far. I haven't particularly enjoyed much of their play, but I thought they played really well tonight. But they only ended up coming away with a point where they probably deserved all three, certainly based on their first half performance. I have to say that Barcelona are probably my favourite side so far in the competition. Um, not necessarily just down to their play, but you know, being a Norwich fan, I obviously love the yellow shirts. But also the bouncing stadium and the yellow nets as well really, really give a great ambience to to this Libertadores. But yes, a few of their players um, I really enjoy watching as well. Jonathan Alves, Caicedo on the wing there. Um, looked like he went off injured late on. Alaman, who scored the goal with a wonderful 1-2 and sort of danced around the keeper and a bit of a game run of play. But it looked like he was going to give them three wins out of three before Botafogo. Uh, scored a, a late penalty, but Botafogo, like you say, had missed one early on. Uh, but they got they got one right at the end. Um, but yeah, Barcelona have some really fun players who look like really enjoying their football. I think Barcelona could really, if certainly if you look at Barcelona in terms of right, okay, Independiente de Valle, a much smaller club than them from Ecuador, managed to make it all the way to the final last year. The players there in Guayaquil for Barcelona, they, they must be thinking, you know, we've got a real chance here. Because in my opinion, this Libertadores does look quite open still. I know that a lot of people are sort of talking and writing about the Brazilian sides dominating the, dominating the competition. But that's always going to be a case in the group stages when you've got so many Brazilian sides in it. You know, those Brazilian sides are probably going to meet each other in, in the knockout rounds and, and and the draw could suddenly open up for a team like Barcelona who seem to have a good spirit about them. Uh, they've got a good style as well, a really intimidating atmosphere there at home. And yeah, they must fancy their chances of going far. They're, they're really well placed in this group. 
to get out of it probably in first place as well even even despite conceding late on in, in this game Tom Barcelona's goalkeeper Bongeta certainly one of the characters of this competition wears a ball cap when he plays goalie although he took it off for the second half tonight made a ton of saves that came up big for this Barcelona side and kept them in this match and really is probably the biggest reason why they leave with a point on a night when, as Adam said, Botafogo were really strong. Yeah, I've got to tip my cap to uh, Bangera there in goal because he did have, as you said, a fantastic game. And I, I'm pretty sure the reason why he conceded that penalty at the end was because he wasn't wearing his uh, his trademark hat. So he should get that back on for, for future games. But yeah, like... It was a crazy game, as, as we've said. The atmosphere was great as well. And, you know, he made that save from a penalty and the rebound not long after. He saved, you know, a very good header from Emerson Silva. And then I think it was Pimpao who hit the post straight afterwards. And even when he was beaten, um, I think Imar did an acrobatic kind of bicycle kick goal line clearance. And it just seemed like they were the Barcelona goal was living a charmed life. And um, they kind of almost Botafogo'd Botafogo um, uh, to some extent in that first half. They they snatched a goal a bit against the run of play with a with a beautiful one-two um, from uh, yeah like another of the the Afros on show. You know we we were all talking about Camilo beforehand. He's having a great competition, but he was the guy who missed the penalty, and it was uh, Christian Aleman who who was the uh, fluffy head playmaker forward who uh who ended up getting getting the vital first goal but um Camilo did redeem himself with uh I think he set up I'm not sure if it was the the, the penalty they conceded but he he set up some good chances for Sassar who I thought was very good when he came on I think like uh, Adam was saying they're a team full of personality Esteria on the wing is also full of tricks and um I, I really liked Pineda as well he was he was very good on the ball and liked to get forward so yeah I mean it's they're a fun team and you know yeah I think the comparison with Independiente del Valle could could be a good one um so hopefully seeing more of them but you know credit to uh Botafogo for um staying in in the game and getting a, a very important draw in the end out of it I mean they've They've stunk the place out for a lot of the tournament, but, you know, they could be, you know, a side that goes far. Simon, we've talked about it on the pods. Both Fogo have not impressed us really at any point in this tournament. But as Adam said, I thought this was the best they'd played. They only got a point for it. But that first half was, I think, the best overall we've seen from both the Fogo. This was a really fun match on both ends. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, you know, obviously the goal from Aleman was excellent. You know, Throughout the tournament, I've been one of the guys defending Botafogo. They're not that bad, I, you know. I like, I, you know, I like a team that has a good, a good, uh, you know, well organized, has a number ten who pulls with the strings. You know, I think, I think, um, why Barcelona are very exciting and, and one to watch, and a team I've enjoyed. You know, I think Botafogo could sneak. I think they'll get through this group, and I think they could be a, you know, a team that sneaks their way through a few more qualifying, uh, a few more knockout games as well. I, you know, I think. Having a team that's pretty well organised with a with a very talented, charismatic playmaker, you know, it, it goes quite far. So, again, yeah, very exciting game. Uh, even with the penalty at the end, some of the there was definitely some encroaching going on in that penalty. There were definitely some players in the box, but I think as you mentioned before the pod, the goalkeeper as well was about four yards off his line. So, 
there was a player five yards into the box and the goalkeeper four yards off his line. Um, the penalty taker was getting closed out from both sides. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, an exciting game. Both the teams now look in a very good position um, as we move forward in the in the tournament. Um, perhaps a surprise, you know, Estudiantes and Nacional look like they may be going out against uh, Botafogo and Barcelona, who at this before the tournament began, you know, maybe we would have said the table would be upside down. Certainly, certainly indeed. Adam, for you, Barcelona and Botafogo both on seven, Estudiantes behind them on three, Nacional in the bottom with, with zero. Barcelona and Botafogo's group for you, are those the two teams you think will get through? Yeah, I, th- I think those, these two are the best two sides in this group from what I've seen in these first three matches, but there, there is enough quality there in that Estudiantes squad to, to maybe challenge one of these teams for 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 one of those two places. And for you, Tom? Yeah, I think uh, Botafogo and Barcelona will probably be the two t- uh, sides that go through. Um, I think the table might look a bit tighter come the uh, sixth game, but yeah, I think uh, they've both been, you know, nice surprises for the tournament in different ways. Um, and yeah, um, I think it, I think it'll be them too. Well, we have run on, on our time. I'm very aware of how late it must be for poor Tom in London. So we will wrap up there. Uh, another exciting week coming up next week. Uh, we'll see Palmeiras and Flamengo come back in the competition. We'll see River Plate travel to Emelec. So certainly some great matches for us to break down next week as we've pretty much hit the halfway point of the group stage uh, so far. So we will run around, give you, give these guys a chance to let you know where you can find them on Twitter and give them a chance to plug. Tom, I'll start with you. Where can the listeners find you on Twitter and anything you want to plug? So you can find me on Twitter at TomRobbo89. Um, I've got a, f- a few pl- uh, pieces up on a new site called uh, ESD Analysis, um, lots of kind of scout reports and player reports. Um, I've done one on uh, a pod favorite, Juan Camilo Hernandez, which... Uh, yeah, everyone should check out. And um, the next one should be Santiago Ascasivar, um, who I mentioned earlier in the pod. Um, and then other than that, looking forward to uh, the Under-20 World Cup, and I'll be keeping an eye on the uh, the South American sides in that. Simon, for you, I know you did the pod uh, with Steve Grieve, the tactics pod, a really great breakdown, really, really enjoyable listen. I would highly recommend that to the listeners um, on youth development in Colombia. Of course, with Envigado, a club that's close to you, as well as the contrast with Atletico Nacional, a club that we've seen successful. Uh, so I'll give you a chance to plug that as well as tell the listeners where they can find you on Twitter. Sure. So on Twitter, at uh, Simon Edwards SAF. Yeah, no, I enjoyed I enjoyed that podcast with uh, Stevie Grieve. It's really good to have his his opinion and his recommendations and get some feedback on on you know what he believes of the Colombian setup in terms of youth acquisition and development. Interesting to have his perspective from different countries and how the Colombian approach compares. So that was something I, a conversation I enjoyed having. So glad to hear people enjoyed listening to it as well. That uh, I'd also recommend listening, uh, reading that article from Tom. That was very interesting about Camilo Hernandez, who's a player I've enjoyed watching uh, very thorough. Um, so yeah, follow me on Twitter. Any questions, any Colombian goings-on, you can check me out on Twitter uh, at Simon Edwards SAF. And I will quickly also recommend uh, the Photoshop or whatever it was that you did of Justin Bieber in an AFC Envigado kit this week, uh, showing that 
maybe he does have a favorite Colombian team or a new favorite Colombian team. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was a, there was like a parody article saying that he was a fan of of some team. I don't know where it came from, but <laughs> yeah, I really don't have that much time on my hands. I don't know what I was thinking, but you know, I got carried away in the moment. I enjoyed it. If, if for what it's worth, it, it at least made me happy. It made me smile. Uh, so yeah, there's that. Uh, Adam, for you, where can you be found on Twitter and anything that you would like to plug? Uh, you can find me at Kinesia Scores. Nothing pers- personally to plug, but you know, there, there's a lot of great content on World Football Index at the moment. You know, as you guys just mentioned there, Simon's uh, Columbia Columbia Youth Development Pod with Stevie Gree. That was a really interesting. Listen, and also the the Globe Pod this week. Um, Looking at the media side and journalism, the future of journalism and football was also really a fascinating listen. So definitely check out those two pods. And I and I know that we've got a treat coming up um, in a, in a minute on this pod, um, as we're going to have the the band of San Lorenzo, the bar of San Lorenzo, to play us out with a with a tune that hopefully we're here during what looks to be maybe the match of the match day next week when San Lorenzo take on Universidad Católica in a huge game in Group 4 in the Lipid Stories. So, looking forward to, to that one. Well, I won't delay letting the San Lorenzo band take us out. Uh, I'm at Austin underscore James 906 on Twitter. You can find me there. Subscribe to all the WFI podcasts. A lot of great stuff going on there, so keep an eye on all of that. We'll be back next week. A whole new set of games, a whole new set of drama to break down for you. But it has run on, so that'll leave me just to say goodnight. And we'll let that band take us out for another great week of Rebecca Dose. Good night, everybody.